Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the CIO House View monthly live webcast. My name is Anthony Pastore. I am the head of broadcast communications here in the Chief Investment Office and for Global Wealth Management at UBS. Today is Thursday, February 1st. Happy February, everyone. And it is 1 p.m. here on the East Coast. So good afternoon to those of you on the East Coast. Good morning to those of you further west. Uh, today, I'm joined for this conversation by my CIO colleagues, Nadia Lovell and Jason Dreho. And for those of you who are frequent viewers of this webcast on a monthly basis, you know that we do like to hear from you. So right now, the screen that you're watching this webcast on, there is an ask a question button right there. We're already fielding questions, so feel free to send them in and then we'll compile them. And a little bit later in the webcast, we will definitely be talking about those questions that come in for Nadia and for David, uh, excuse me, for Jason. So um, Jason, I want to start with you. Thanks again for being here. It's so exciting to be with you and Nadia for this conversation. A lot going on in the markets. Clearly, we're watching equities make near all-time highs nearly daily on the S&P 500. We're watching 10-year and 30-year and two-year yields uh, started to come down a little bit. We're going to get into all of that. But most notably, we've even had a Fed meeting as of yesterday. So let's talk about more broadly the U.S. economic strength. Maybe you can give us, as we get started here, your latest pulse on the U.S. economy. Well, if we take both the growth data and the inflation data thus far this year, uh, it looks a lot like sort of our Goldilocks scenario, the upside scenario, where the economy is, is doing well, growth is good, uh, inflation is still trending lower. Uh, specific data points uh, to kind of I'll collaborate that. Uh, we got last week uh, or earlier this week, Fourth quarter GDP numbers came in at 3.3%, uh, quite a bit above expectations to kind of end off what ended up being a very strong year for the U.S. economy, which means it's coming into 2024, came into 2024 into, you know, on good momentum. The data that we can see thus far uh, for whether it's consumer spending, uh, you know, uh, the labor market data all showing kind of continued sort of resilience. So the economic story, the growth story is quite positive, you know, holding up better than people expected even three months ago. At the same time, the inflation data is still kind of moving in the right direction. It's, it's coming down, so in line with expectations. Uh, and even another data point we got in conjunction with the fourth quarter GDP and employment cost index, the broadest measure of kind of labor costs in the economy, that came in a little bit below expectations, uh, like at 0.9% for the fourth quarter, kind of in line now or getting close to in line with what the Fed would want to see in terms of labor market cooling. So good growth data. Good little inflation data. It's kind of one of the reasons why you mentioned like the S&P 500 was hitting all-time new highs, just because the data was kind of coming in and really you know, favorable support for the markets overall. Great, Jason. Thank you so much. Let me stick with you, though, because as I teased right at the beginning, as we were starting, we did have a Fed meeting. We're talking about the Federal Reserve, the FOMC for our viewers today. Um, and there was a lot of information that came out, and it's not even the tea leaves Powell, Jay Powell, the Fed chair, did have some things to say. I think the market was surprised that there was less of an indication that he'd be cutting rates in March. What did you take away from that? And tell us some of the, the real high points of the meeting and the subsequent press conference with Jay Powell. Well, the expectations going to the meeting was that the Fed wouldn't hike. Uh, or, or they wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't hike or cut. They also really wouldn't tip their hand one way or another in terms of their intentions going forward. We knew from December, the, you know, the issue of statement every meeting, his statement in December sort of still had a bias towards we may have to do more hiking or, or you know, to bring inflation down. That was likely to be taken out of statement, which it was. Uh, but there was also 
both in the statement and comments from Powell that when asked what more do they need to see to get comfortable to cut rates, they say that you know, the data is moving in the right direction. I alluded to the inflation story trending in the, in the right way, especially over the last six months or so, but they just need to see like more good data or more confidence. Uh, it's a pretty subjective assessment in terms of like, what is that criteria to be met? Um, but when it was actually, Powell was asked very explicitly in the press conference, uh, you know, about a March rate cut, he said, right now, based on the community's kind of you know, views, it seems unlikely that we would have a cut in March. Um, like that wouldn't be the base case, which is, you know, about as explicit as a Fed chair would ever get in a meeting to say what our intentions are for the next meeting. Going into it is a roughly 50-50 kind of probability that the Fed, you know, would do a cut. Uh, after the press conference, that was down to about a third. So I think that was the one surprising thing is how explicit he was in terms of kind of ruling out or saying March is unlikely. Our base case has been that they wouldn't cut in March. They would start cutting rates in May. So this was kind of consistent what we thought. Uh, and we still think that's the case. They, they will have enough information to start cutting rates in May. Uh, and they'll cut a total of four times or 100 basis points this year. Uh, it is interesting to see the market did shift in that direction. It is pricing much more of a, a you know May start time for the first cuts, but it didn't change the number of cuts for the year overall. I think there is a little bit of a takeaway in the markets that, you know, kind of in line with what maybe you'd expect from kind of the Fed, uh, but also worries that is the Fed going to be a little bit behind the curve in cutting? Like how much information do they need to see that inflation is coming down for them to start cutting? You know, the fear would be that they wait too long and that raises the chance of a policy error and they'd have to cut actually more aggressively later on. So that was if the one takeaway was Powell's being very explicit that March is probably not going to happen. The market's reaction to that, okay, fine. That means you might be behind the curve and you might have to do more later on. Yeah, it's interesting when you listen into what his press conference was, uh, when, uh, what he was saying, um, he, he kind of alluded to the idea of that that strength of the combo of 2023, where we had strong growth and slowing inflation, which isn't very common. He was kind of indicating that that's OK this year as well. He said growth is OK, but as long as inflation continues to slow. So clearly we see what the Fed's mandate is. But obviously, when you talk about growth, you're talking about jobs as well. And we've got the jobs numbers coming out tomorrow. That would be February 2nd. Um, and so there's expectations that, you know, we're going to see non-farm payrolls at around 175,000, a little bit below last month's of 216, unemployment rate, of course. Um, what are you what are you watching for here, Jason? So, again, like what, what are those payrolls? Do they surprise to the upside or downside? And then how does the market react to that? Uh, it is interesting. You know, the Fed could have kept all options on the table for March if we got 100,000 for January and then like another say 75 for February. So it's trending kind of clearly lower. That might bring a March hike or March cut back on the table. So if we get this, the consensus like around 175, I think kind of reaffirms yeah, that the Fed would sort of view this as a reason to, you know, to wait a little longer to get more information. Uh, but it is kind of, I think, sort of finally balance of how the, uh, the, that data would come out. If you step back and look at all the labor market data, there is signs that it is clearly kind of trending towards cooling. The question is just, you know, how much uh, and how much is the Fed going to need to see? Uh, but it is indicative of the economy you know, still holding it quite well that the fact that we could get 175,000 as a consensus expectation for, for cuts tomorrow. So I would, you know, assuming we get that, I think the real key is kind of looking actually next week when we get inflation data. Uh, for January, but also there's revisions for inflation data for last year, as now that kind of the the, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics would sort of revise it. If it were revised in a way that's even trending more clearly lower, and then we get a January CPI data print that is also kind of on the low end, it starts to kind of put you know, the, the March maybe a little bit back on the table, and it makes it harder for the Fed to justify why aren't they moving when the inflation data is, is quite there. Just the one thing I'd add is last year, Powell would often say we need almost growth below trend. 
and the labor market are really cool and soften for us to be comfortable that inflation would accelerate. By the end of the year, they seem to be more comfortable that, you know, actually we can cut even if the economy is growing at trend or above. His comments yesterday imply they almost want to see payrolls growth of like 100,000 to be kind of comfortable before they start cutting. So it does slip flop a little bit. And so therefore, it might be the case of a bad data point or disappointing data point it might actually be good news to the markets because it does bring March back on the table. Yeah, there's that interesting pivot every time there's an economic cycle where bad news is good news for the markets and vice versa. So thanks for taking us through that, Jason. All right. So, Nadia, let's bring you into the conversation. Always a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I want to I want to talk, obviously, about what's going on. We're in the middle of earnings reporting season for the fourth quarter. And I think that anyone who has been watching our monthly shows is aware of what we call the Magnificent Seven, not we, but the industry. That's the seven big tech names in the S&P that really lifted all the boats last year. Um, and some of them did report over the past couple of days. So without going into the specific companies or names, what were some takeaways for you? And and are we, here's the big question, I think that's coming in from a lot of our clients and advisors is, are we in for another year of Magnificent Seven dominance? Thanks, Anthony. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a big week of earnings for S&P. We've had about 40% or so of the market cap that's reporting this week. So far, we've had three of the Magnificent Seven report. Um, that includes Microsoft, Google, as well as Tesla. After the close today, we'll get another three, Apple, Amazon, and Meta. Clearly, expectations are high. I mean, reality is that the earnings growth that we have seen in uh, the S&P 500 over the last year, and even some of it this year, is being driven by these magnificent seven companies. And so um, expectations are high. Many of these companies are reaching all-time highs into their print. But as you said, not going into any specific on any one company, some of the trends that we have seen so far is that those with AI exposure and monetization opportunity are fair and better than those without. I mean, yes, we can all agree that AI is in its early infancy still, but what we're seeing so far is that adaptation is happening faster than any other sort of technologies that we have seen in the past. And that's already helping companies to a surprise to the upside on their revenues. We're also seeing that cloud infrastructure optimization and the reluctancy to really put new workload forward, um, that has been plaguing the industry for the past year plus. Much of that now seems to be behind us and things are stabilizing. And that's a good thing for the software spending environment. We're also seeing a pickup in CapEx, but despite that new investment in AI, we're seeing some companies are still able to expand margins because they are taking cost control in other areas, such as um, uh, 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 headcount reduction. We are also seeing continued increased competition within advertising, particularly on the video side. Um, but I would say, um, Anthony, when all is said and done, we're seeing that the, the guidance for some of these companies have been a little bit underwhelming. And so you're seeing some reactions from the company's uh, stocks. But I would also argue that there could be a level of conservatism uh, in that. I want to pull back the lens and expand a little bit on broader tech. I mean, what we have seen so far in broader tech earnings is that we're seeing some recovery in end markets, specifically in smartphone PCs and servers. And that started um, last quarter. Order, but we're seeing continued rollover in areas like analog, uh, including industrials and autos. And I think this speaks and supports our tactical um, semiconductor theme that is really focused on end markets and recovering end markets. But to your question on can the Magnificent 7 continue to dominate performance this year? 
Anthony, I would say, you know, new terms are already emerging. You're hearing about the super sick, so the fab five. So that in itself actually tells us something. But when we look at the performance of the MAG-7 so far this year, it's actually roughly in line with that of the broader market with wide dispersion. You have one company that's up 25% and you have another stock that's down 25%. So we think that as the year progresses, you're likely going to see more broadening out of performance into other areas of the market, which is quite encouraging, particularly if you see economic growth continues to hold in there, which we think that it will, and the Fed um, uh, cuts, which we think that um, they will. So we, we're looking for opportunities in other areas of the market at this point. But that doesn't mean that the Max 7, Anthony, cannot some of them cannot still under, uh, outperform. I don't want to give that impression, but we think that you have to be selective within the MAG-7. Within tech, we prefer those companies that have exposure more to the enterprise versus the consumer and also have exposure to AI. Yeah, thank you, Nadia. I'm glad you added that distinction in there. And even in the chart that you um, gave to us to put up on the screen, everyone can see the magnificent, literally magnificent performance in 2Q, 3Q, 4Q of 2023, where in over the next year, you do expect modest growth, slowing growth in the MAG-7 and slightly higher growth in the rest of the S&P 493. So thanks again for uh, for sharing that with us. While I have you, Nadia, obviously tech is not the only sector that we track here, and that's not the only sector that our clients are investing in. What other areas of the market right now are you watching? What are you excited about? What's happening in your world there? You know, I think in terms of like what we're seeing in other areas of the market where we see some of the investment opportunities, um, I want to touch, attack it from um, not only a sector standpoint, but also quality as well as a size um, standpoint. Um, when we think about that, we continue to like um, quality as a factor. And when we're talking about quality, we're talking about those companies that are profitable, that generate a lot of free cash flows and also um, a healthy return on invested capital. We also like at this point um, small cap, and you know small cap has sort of rallied off of the October low up twenty percent. But in fact, when you're seeing other areas of the market reach all time highs, you're seeing small cap still twenty percent or so below its high back in November of 2021. And as Jason talked about earlier, we do think that the economic environment still remains healthy. We are looking for 2% GDP growth this year, and that should be favorable for small cap, but we know the small cap is more cyclical. I would also highlight that you know, the manufacturing area has sort of been in contraction territory for some time now. We're finally starting to see a bounce in manufacturing. In fact, the ISM manufacturing uh, PMIs this morning came in at a 15-month high, and we're seeing a pickup in new orders. So that could translate into a, a, a better pickup as we go through to the rest of the year. And when you think about it from a valuation standpoint, we are seeing that um, uh, small cap is does have compelling valuation trading at a discount on a price to book basis of one and a half times below its large cap uh, pairs. So we think that there's opportunities here in small cap, particularly as the Fed starts to um, ease monetary policy. Excellent, Nadia. Thank you very much, Jason. Let me let me pivot to one second with you because uh, I'm sure a lot of the viewers today are wondering about this side of the equation as well, which is of course the geopolitical environment that we're currently in globally. Um, and it seems obviously there's like a lot going on in the Middle East. We have the U.S. tensions between, uh, you know, the U.S. and the Houthis in Jordan. There's a continuing conflict um, in, with Israel and Hamas and then, you know, even Ukraine and Russia, which that war is just continuing to rage on. How are you thinking about all of this when you're thinking about 
the investment side of this? What are you talking to clients about when they ask questions about all of these geopolitical tensions, Jason? The challenge with any geopolitical event is trying to put a probability of like, how could this escalate? When could it escalate? Uh, that's really difficult. It's end up being very, very subjective assessments. What we can do is start to assess if something were to happen, what are the broader economic implications? Like what are the flow through back to the US economy, to the global economy? And for the Middle East, you know, it always kind of boils down in some ways to, you know, oil, the price of oil, the potential disruptions to supply. Uh, thus far, we haven't seen like oil react going back the past few months to, you know, the tensions that have been escalated. Given that the impact on the U.S. economy from those tensions is is you know very modest, you know, like, you know, would obviously have not much impact on you know, the price of gasoline that you know homeowners or consumers are paying. Uh, the other aspect that is you know getting attention is the you know, attacks by the Houthis on you know ships through the the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. So there's definitely been an impact there. That is down, I think, like 70, 80 percent in terms of the number of ships going through. The, many of them are having to travel around you know, the, the the Horn of Africa, so it's adding you know, up to two weeks of delivery times. This is kind of bringing back you know concerns of during the pandemic when supply chains were being disrupted. Could this add to inflation and things of that sort? Uh, it, directly, yes. Uh, it will matter, but in terms of magnitude, this is still quite trivial. What it means uh, in terms of like, you know, supplies will still get through, but it might take an extra couple of weeks. You know, and, and once you know, shippers and you know can sort of plan for it, once people you know importing the stuff can plan for it, that ultimately sort of you know, is, gets baked into it. You know, shipping costs might go up marginally, but for the goods, the physical goods that U.S. consumers are buying, the percent that goes towards you know the cost to shipping is pretty minor, like we're talking single digits, low single digits. So even if some of those costs were to like go up 20, 30%, the impact on US inflation can amount to, you know, in basis points, instead of inflation at like 3.1%, and maybe it's at 3.2%, you know, given those disruptions. So all that is means these, uh, the economic impact is modest, and just given the economic data we have in the US, you can see that that's playing out. Uh, it shouldn't impact earnings, you know, that large. So you can again, see the markets that are treating it more as a tail risk. Uh, it could escalate. And so one of some of the ways in which, you know, we would sort of maybe recommend investors navigating these geopolitical uncertainties is more about not altering the core allocations to your portfolio, not changing the base case, but thinking about, uh, you know, potential tail risks. So, you know, uh, you know, a sector like energy, obviously having exposure there, if oil prices go up, that could be some stocks that would benefit or more directly kind of get an exposure to commodities and oil prices specifically are ways to kind of have that. But I think more of it is it's a tail risk. And given the economic relevance of the Middle East, beyond oil is pretty minor for the US economy. It's not something that really is driving the markets. It's much more about how is the US economy doing and how is the Fed going to react to that and cut rates? That's the biggest driver by far of what's having driving markets overall. The Middle East situation more as a tail risk right now that hasn't really, really flared up for the markets uh, significantly. Thank you, Jason. Nadia, back to, I want to go back to earnings with you for a moment on the equity side. Uh, we did talk about tech earnings. Um, are there any notable, other notable trends that you're seeing when it comes to other earnings that we're seeing in other sectors, obviously, outside of tech? What's going on right now as these earnings reports continue to come in? Oh, thank you for that question, Anthony. I don't want to give the impression that tech, tech is only where the action is. Well, we have had about 40% or so of S&P companies have reported so far. And I would say that the results have been decent. I mean, in fact, when you look at it, companies are beating expectations by about 6%. So they are on course to produce about 4 to 5% uh, earnings growth for the fourth quarter in line with our expectations. Uh, the guidance so far, I would say, uh, is fairly okay. Um, 
you know, nothing out of the ordinary. We are seeing a little bit of a trim into the Q1 numbers, but again, nothing out of the ordinary with the historical pattern. And I think what's important is that you're seeing the full year number for 2024 largely remains intact. In terms of some of the commentary that we're hearing, you know, of course, the January cold weather um, is impacting some companies and disruption from the winter storms. But overall, we're consistently hearing from companies about the continued strength of the U.S. consumer. We heard that a couple of weeks from the banks and more recently we're hearing it from the credit card companies. We're also hearing about green shoots and, and it feels like that the manufacturing side is has bottomed out. Just like the ISM suggested this morning, we're also hearing that from companies, uh, particularly in semis that I talked about earlier and also in trucking. Um, those that have exposure to onshoring and infrastructure spending are also benefiting. The banks, too, are also seeing some green shoots in capital market activity. So we're almost halfway through earnings. There's still some heavy hitters um, still to come, but so far um, it has been good enough. And I think that that gives us some comfort in our full year outlook for earnings of high single digits. Um, we feel comfortable at this point that at that uh, companies will be able broadly to be able to deliver that the S&P 500 um, high single digits earning growth for 2024. Nadia, thank you. I'm going to stick with you for one second because in case anybody has been, you know, sleeping, uh, you know, through the winter or at least not paying attention to any piece of news that's coming out. We have a U.S. election this year. Um, all eyes are certainly on that, not just here in the U.S., but all around the globe. Um, primary season is obviously underway. President, former President Trump won in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, so it looks like we may be on a bit of a collision course for a rematch of 2020 with former President Trump sitting President Biden. How, and I know you get this question a lot. When it comes to the markets, how do you think about an election in an election year? And of course, we always say this is the biggest election of our most important election of our lifetimes. Putting that aside, elections and markets, what's the history? What do you think about for this year? Yeah, you know, um, we're still a long ways away, as you know, and a lot could happen between um, then um, and, and, and between now and then. But, you know, as you alluded to, it's becoming clearer who the candidates will likely be a, another Trump and, and Biden matchup. Historically, what you have seen in markets is that markets tend to pick up in volatility um, a couple months ahead of the election and tends to tr trade sideways just because of the uncertainty. But this time around, it could be different just because the candidates might be known Brilliant. Now, that's not to say that we can't see some impact to specific industries and companies. That remains to be seen. I mean, when you sort of think about what happened post the 2016 election, you saw banks rally quite hard in the days after President Trump's win. And that's because of expectations of deregulation. As you might remember, under the Trump um, administration, you did see a massive overhaul of the corporate taxing system. Um, corporate taxes came down from 35% down to 21%. You did also see an increase um, in, in tariffs. Um, think about it. We saw increases, tariffs on washing machines, solar panels, steel, aluminum. And we also saw hard stands against um, China. So you could see if there is a second um, Trump presidency, you could see um, more tariffs and you could see more American protectionism. I mean, in fact, um, former President Trump has already um, proposed a possibility of a 10% tariffs across the board on all imports. I would say, Anthony, another thing that we will be closely watching is going to be on the energy 
countryside because these candidates have very different views on that side. We know that President Biden has been more focused on climate change and supportive of green technology. Um, we could see under our Trump presidency the possibility of some of the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, potentially gets rolled back and you could see um, an increase in fossil fuel the other industry I think that we'll keep an eye on, of course, tech. Tech over the last few years has sort of been front and center when it comes to, um, from a, a geopolitical standpoint, a data um, uh, privacy standpoint, and a national security um, standpoint. We could see, uh, we do think that both candidates are probably going to hold the line in China, particularly around access to advanced American technology. So some of the, these are some of the things that we're watching. But I think what's important to note is that the historical data suggests that you know, the market's just fine in an election year and the the, uh, the performance is no different regardless of, uh, uh, of who wins. Um, but again, we don't, we will be watching this and it's not certain if we could see any impact from individual com companies and industries. So we will continue to be on election watch, Anthony. Excellent, Nadia, thank you very much. Uh, Jason, one more question for you and then we're gonna turn our attention to our audience questions. Got a couple that are coming in. Um, and then the, this is for you, just turning to fixed income. How are you thinking about it right now in the context of our, meaning CIO's, interest rate outlook and where we see, uh, you know, yields sort of sitting right now? Well, if we think of the, my comments about the Fed cutting rates starting in May, 100 basis points, historically, we've seen when that happens, the 10-year Treasury yield tends to drift a little bit lower. Uh, already, we've seen the yield go, the 10-year go from like roughly 3 0.85 at the start of the year, up to almost 4.2%. Just in the past couple of days, it's pulled back. Ultimately, I think you know, our view is that the 10 years is going to sort of be a somewhat range-bound trade, you know, up to you know, kind of four, four and a quarter, uh, you know, kind of the lows that we've seen now. That's going to be the kind of the environment conditional on the economic data and views of what is the Fed going to do. Um, but ultimately, the, the, you know, as we move into the second quarter, second half of the year, we think that rates would will decline, you know, given the economic outlook of, of some moderation of growth, but most principally because of the, of the Fed cutting. Given sort of that outlook, we like fixed income overall. It is our most preferred asset class, and specifically kind of higher quality bonds. Uh, you don't have to take a lot of credit risk right now to get you know attractive yields on high quality fixed income. And by that, I mean whether it's you know, treasury bonds, high quality municipal bonds, higher quality investment grade corporate bonds, but also things in the securitized credit space. Uh, agency mortgage-backed securities, they're effectively kind of guaranteed by the government through Fannie and Freddie. Um, high quality commercial mortgage backed uh, bonds that are you know, double A rated. These actually have quite attractive spreads uh, relative to treasuries for pretty low risk. So these are the areas that we like within fixed income. Uh, I'd say, you know, with the overall story at the moment, kind of duration sort of maybe, you know, and, and rates kind of range bound, drifting lower once the Fed starts cutting rates, kind of go up in quality because you can get good yields, uh, you know, across, uh, you know, the spectrum without taking a lot of credit risk uh, at this point in time. Excellent, Jason. Thank you. So we've got, uh, we had a, a number of questions come in from the audience, but we are running low on time. So Nadia, first one for you is the question of, are you, obviously there's news uh, related to regional banks and we're dipping back to what happened last March when there was concern that these banks were failing. Any concerns given the recent news that we're seeing? Uh, no, we're not overly concerned, but it is something that we're monitoring. I think what happened yesterday with um, the community bank is unique to that bank, um, New York Community Bank. It did acquire, if you remember, the assets of Signature Bank, and that put that bank over 
um, $100 billion in terms of um, assets and therefore a new um, class from a regulatory standpoint. So more regulatory scrutiny. Um, the bank did have uh, to uh, charge us in, in, related to two loans, um, one multifamily loan and another in uh, the office space. And so that caused some concerns in the market. But I think that's unique to to um, that particular bank. Now, remember, um, there are still worries in the marketplace around CREs. Um, reality is that 60% or so of um, commercial um, loans are sitting on, uh, at banks, a disproportionate amount on regional banks, about 30% or so of regional banks' loans are attached to the commercial real estate market um, versus for large cap banks um, of 7%. So it is something that's worth watching, particularly as some of these um, debt come up for refinancing. About a trillion dollars or so of debt is expected to uh, mature from now through the end of 2025. So as that comes up for refinancing, there are some concerns about like the refinancing of that, given that some of the asset values might have declined um, over the last couple of years. But we don't think that this will be a systematic risk. It seems to be that it will be well contained, but it is something that's worth watching within the regional banking space. Thank you so much, Nadia. Jason, last audience question for you. And it asks, how are you thinking about government debt levels and, of course, the impact on the markets? This is a question that's been coming up a lot lately. Well, the debt levels uh, don't look good if you kind of project them out over the next 10, 20, 30 years. The, 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 largest, the size of the deficits are unsustainable. If that continues, the debt to GDP ratio just will, will kind of essentially explode. So at some point in time, this will have to be dealt with. If we think about the markets right now, though, the markets are basically saying this is tomorrow's problem. Tomorrow could be five years down the line. It's not today's problem. And two simple things I would look at to kind of you know, validate that view. One is the concern about these high deficits really kind of you know surfaced, particularly you know last summer, when it looked like you know the you know the deficit's going to be about six seven percent of GDP last year this year, we saw rates rise uh, in late summer into the fall. Some concern was that this is a reflection of the investor base, the broader investor base can be concerned about these large deficits. We've since pretty much unwound in that entire rise in rates, you know, from where they began early in the summer. Uh, which tells us to me that most of that move was much more about the economy is doing well, the Fed will have to keep rates higher for longer. So the unwinds again reflective of the fact that the Fed is on the verge, you know, within the next couple of months, a few months of cutting rates. So the market's not yet concerned about large deficits being disruptive. The bond venture lenders aren't demanding a, a big premium. And another, just one other point on that, in the first three and a half weeks of this calendar year, approximately, there was over $800 billion worth of bonds issued globally, whether by governments, corporates, other entities. That's a huge amount of money that was absorbed by investors pretty easily. Uh, for context, the U.S. deficit could be like around 1.6, 1.7 trillion this year. Very big number, but based on the, how the market was able to take down that issuance in three and a half weeks, that would have taken them seven weeks to buy the entire supply of U.S. Treasuries, you know, this year based on the deficit. So um, it will be an issue someday. Right now, investors, you know, are are kind of happy to buy yields at these current levels aren't demanding a significant sort of premium in the markets. Um, so a problem for another day, not this year. Good to hear, Jason. That's a nice note to end our conversation on. Thank you so much, Jason Dreho, and of course, to Nadia Lovell. Always good to be with you both and have these great conversations. And that's all the time we have for, for today. Thank you all for joining us out there in our audience. And we always appreciate you sending in the questions to us as well. Um, so just as a quick reminder, there's a lot of in, uh, information and content that's coming out of our chief investment office, blogs, reports, podcasts, videos. You can find everything and more at our website, ubs.com 
forward slash views, V-I-E-W-S. Easy enough. Lots of great content there from the entire chief investment office on pretty much any platform you'd like to consume it with. And don't forget to mark your calendars for the next CIO Live webcast, which will take place on Thursday, March 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Until next time, I'm Anthony Pastore. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Have a great day. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.